0: Hello, this is Jim Stein, your host for New Books in Mathematics. Our guest today is Jason Rosenhaus, who is the co-editor of The Mathematics of Various Entertaining Subjects. This book covers a multitude of topics and is in many ways as entertaining as the various subjects it describes. Even though the book can be skimmed simply to expose one to various aspects of recreational mathematics, I think it's fair to say that some mathematical background is needed to fully appreciate it. But even if you're only willing to skim the book, you're going to find sections which will make you want to dive in more deeply. Jason, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Um, Recreational mathematics seems like an oxymoron to a lot of people. What exactly is recreational mathematics and what role does it play in the development of mathematics? Where are people likely to encounter it? Uh,
1: Well, I can understand why uh, people might find that confusing. I mean, recreational implies uh, that you're doing it for fun. And I think for a lot of people uh, outside the mathematical community, maybe it doesn't always seem like math can be fun. Um, But really what recreational mathematics is, at least the way we conceive it, is that it's mathematics that's inspired by games and puzzles uh, or or brain teasers uh, or uh, or just ultimately any sort of uh, mathematics where you're undertaking it just for just for the fun of it uh, and not with, say, a a specific physical problem in mind uh, and and not necessarily with... um, intending to extend the theory of some, uh, established branch of mathematics. Um, so a simple example might be, uh, if you look at something like a Sudoku puzzle, uh, lots of people would like Sudoku puzzles and, you know, b- books of Sudoku puzzles sell very well at bookstores. Um, but a mathematician looking at a Sudoku puzzle would probably ask questions like, uh, how many Sudoku grids are there? How many puzzles can you make? Uh, how many puzzles can you make if you take uh, symmetry into consideration? Uh, and things like that. Um, so that very roughly is, uh, is, is what recreational math is. Now, the, the, the funny thing is uh, you can point to a lot of major, well-established branches of mathematics, uh, and you find that they had their origins in recreational problems. Uh, one of my favorite examples is uh, probability theory, uh, which nowadays is, is, is one of the you know, established branches of mathematics with applications in, in all sorts of other sciences, and it's now just a standard part of every math student's education. And yet, if you look at the origins, the first serious work in probability theory was done by people like Pascal and Fermat, and they were considering a very practical problem given to them uh, by a, by a professional gambler of the time. Uh, he was just wondering about the you know proper gambling strategies under certain uh, cir- circumstances, and in just thinking about that problem and doing what was reasonable to solve that problem, uh, they developed a lot of the major techniques of recreational mathematics uh, so so that's kind of the idea it 's that very often mathematics undertaken. Uh, simply for its recreational value, simply because people thought it was just fun to to, to look at uh, you know look at this topic uh very often turns out to be the beginning of a of a uh, major development in mathematics
0: you know I can recall two instances in which major uh, major recreational mathematics uh, found its way into the general public and when i was younger this might be a little before your time there was something called the 15 puzzle which consisted of sliding tiles and an updated variation of that was in the 1980s with rubik's cube so i know that people have at least seen recreational mathematics even though they may not realize it's recreational mathematics when they see it
1: yeah those are both good examples and of course uh, yeah, the rubik's cube uh, you know Erno rubik was a professional mathematician right who uh... Uh, developed a cube to illustrate certain uh, algebraic uh, you know principles. So yeah, so that, that those are other good examples. I think.
0: Um, was there an overarching theme to the book, or did you just choose topics that appeal to you? Uh,
1: well, the overarching theme uh, was that was uh, I, I don't know if there was an overarching theme, but the the, the book arose uh, out of a, a conference in recreational math that was held in uh, New York City, uh, and it was sponsored by the Museum of Mathematics. Uh, and uh, if any of our listeners uh, live in the general vicinity of New York City, I strongly recommend that they uh, pay a visit to the museum. It's really quite a quite a wonderful place. And um, the uh, organizer of the museum, Cindy Lawrence, uh, decided uh, they, they were looking for a way of just sort of promoting you know, mathematics, uh, you know, in the community. And they came up with this idea of hosting a, a, a serious conference on recreational math. Uh, maybe that sounds like a you know, contradiction in terms—a serious conference on recreational math but the point is it was for problems that were recreational problems that were inspired by games and puzzles like we were just discussing um, but also for you know serious uh you know mathematical research into those areas so they they uh they they had the idea for this conference and the name of the conference was the mathematics of various entertaining subjects and the you know, the acronym there is MOVES so we refer to it as the MOVES conference uh, in New York so uh so the the uh, the book is essentially uh, a conference proceedings for that conference it's not it's not strictly a conference proceedings not all of the papers were, were presented there but it's effectively uh, a, a, a proceedings of that conference uh, so the the papers that we publish in the book are really just whatever you know people submitted we put out a general call to anyone who participated in the conference said if you would like to submit a paper please feel free to send it to us and we tend to take a very broad view of what recreational mathematics is um, and uh, and so the papers are really quite diverse uh, but they, they also um, organize themselves uh, you know, loosely around certain themes. Uh, so that, that was sort of the genesis and the origin of the book. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I, I can just leave it there.
0: Yeah, you know, the first essay in the book is short and is entitled, Should You Be Happy? I think it's an excellent use of mathematics to answer common questions that have intriguing mathematics lurking just below the surface.
1: Uh, yeah, so that particular paper was by Peter Winkler. And uh, he's he's quite a well-known guy in mathematical circles. He's published uh, uh, you know several books of uh, sort of highbrow mathematical uh, brain teasers. And yeah, he has a real gift for uh, finding brain teasers. You know, by brain teasers, I mean little puzzles that you could tell someone, even if they don't have much mathematical background, uh, they could still understand what the puzzle is asking and then and, and what they're being asked to do. And he has a real gift for finding these these uh, seemingly simple puzzles uh, that you can describe and. Um, uh, and, and then showing how, in trying to solve them, you're inevitably led to more serious mathematical principles. Uh, the "Should You Be Happy?" of the title uh, refers to uh, a, a couple of problems that are based on probability theories. Maybe a little hard to get the details in this context, but the basic idea of all the problems he discusses are, um, you, you know, you're, you're, you're playing a game with some other person, and some rules change is suggested that at first blush might seem like it, it, it's to your advantage. But then when you do a little probabilistic analysis, you realize that actually uh, you should not be happy, Uh, actually. uh, That's that's the genesis of the title there.
0: (laughs) Well, I must admit, um, when you were describing Peter Winkler, who was unknown to me, possibly because I'm older, there was a mathematician, John Conway of my generation, who did a similar type of thing. He would see... Puzzles that lurk below the surface and construct games and intriguing situations in which to place them. Oh yeah, well John
1: Conway. I mean he uh, he's you know he's one of the godfathers of putting uh, recreational mathematics onto a serious footing. Uh, he, uh, along with two other people, uh, Richard Guy and uh, Elwin Berlekamp, uh, published a series of books uh, quite a while ago. I I, I I'm blanking on the day. it was my I, I think it was probably in the 1970s that they published it. it Might have been more recent. And uh, but the books were called um, Winning Ways for Your uh, Uh, Winning Ways for Your Mathematical Plays. That that was the title of the book.
0: Yeah, I remember that. That (laughs) Yeah.
1: And uh, and yeah, it was a whole, and and, and it was essentially exactly what we're talking about. It was a sort of serious mathematical analysis of, you know, games and and puzzles, more games in their case. Uh, And actually, this might be a good time to mention, you know, the the, the book that we're discussing was the Proceedings of the First Moves Conference. Uh, These conferences are held every two years. And the second conference uh, was, was held this past August. And it was actually, the, you know, the, the conference was specifically in honor of camp uh, uh, Guy, and Conway. Uh, and uh, my co-editor, Jennifer Beinecke, and I are actually in the process of putting together the second book uh, in the series, uh, which is in part a tribute to them. Uh, so, yeah, they're definitely big names in recreational mathematics.
0: Uh, oh, okay, well, keep me on the mailing list for volume two. i oh, I'll happy to do so. <laughs> okay. I enjoyed the essay on one-move problems. Some of the problems were familiar to me, and maybe to some of our listeners, especially since the solutions are often ingenious but not complicated. The weighing problem is a good example. Perhaps you could describe it.
1: Yeah, I'd be happy to. So uh, yeah that puzzle is a, or, or excuse me that, that, that paper is actually a lot of fun, uh, precisely for the reason you say that um, uh, it, it's a, what the paper is is a survey of puzzles uh, that can be solved in one move, right? So there's like one clever trick you know to, to, to solving each problem, which, which when you see it, uh, makes the problem very clear, but until you see it, uh, it sounds impossible. Uh, the author of that paper, uh, was a fellow named Anani Levitin. Uh, and, um, uh, he's actually, he's, he's another one who's actually a pretty well-known guy. He's the, uh, co-author of a book called Algorithmic, uh, Puzzles. Uh, so if you like, uh, the paper, you should definitely check out his book as well. Now, the coin weighing puzzle, uh, that you actually mentioned, uh, as you say, that's one of the more famous, uh, puzzles. Um, the, the actual puzzle is pretty easy to state. Uh I'll I'll for for the purposes of this conversation I'll give a slightly simplified uh, version of it. Uh the idea is that you imagine you have say 3 bags uh of gold and uh gold coins I should say. And um uh you know two of the bags contain real gold and one of the bags contains counterfeit gold. And what we know is uh the uh the real gold let's uh let's give it away. Let's say the real gold coins weigh 1 pound each and the uh the fake gold let's say weighs uh, 1 pound and 1 ounce. So it's a little bit heavier. Uh, and then your puzzle is this. You have a, a, a scale, uh, that you can use to do weighings, but it's a penny scale. You have to put a penny in and then you put something on the scale and it tells you how much, uh, you know, how much weight you put on the scale, but you only have one penny. So the game is, how can you take, uh, how can you do this with one weighing? How can you take, you know, some coins out of the bags, put them on the scale, get one weighing, and then, uh, from that, uh, figure out which bag has the fake gold? Um, now, there's not. Uh, now I, say, I describe that as a slightly simplified version. Of course, there's nothing special about three bags. Uh, if you want to go for glory, you can try uh, four bags or five bags or, in principle, any number of bags. Um, now, this is quite a well-known puzzle, and it's, and it's funny that you bring it up, because uh, just yesterday, by sheer coincidence, uh, I was watching some late-night television, and a rerun of Columbo came on. Remember Columbo?
0: Of course. Great yeah. show.
1: Well, a rerun of Columbo came on, and, and sure enough, uh, you know, the, that, that puzzle came up uh, you know, in, in the episode. Um, uh, the bad guy was the head of a, of a, of a high IQ society and he gives that puzzle to Columbo early in the episode. Uh, and then sure enough, later in the episode, Columbo solves the puzzle and he prints the solution. So I got all excited like that, that puzzle's in our book, right? And yeah, you know, talk about, <laughs> you know, talk about, about mathematics and popular culture. So anyway, yeah, that's a, that's a very famous puzzle. And it's a good example of what uh, professor Leviton means when he talks about puzzles that can be solved in one move. Uh, one clever trick. I should, should, should we discuss uh, the solution or should we leave it as a,
0: I'm um, actually, I think what we'll do is I think we'll leave it because what I hope will, what I hope will happen, it will pique the curiosity of our listeners who can't stand to have puzzles unresolved and they will rush right out and get a copy of your book. Yeah, I think so too. I think that's a good approach. Oh, okay. Anyway, mazes have fascinated me ever since I encountered them in Williamsburg and also at Hampton Court in England. And I was intrigued by the connection with the traveling salesman problem, which is deep.
1: Uh yeah. So that, yeah, that's another fun paper. Uh, you know, mazes are another example of sort of a recreational topic. There's a there's a rich uh, mathematical theory surrounding uh, mazes, but at the same time, I think uh, you know everyone has enjoyed working out a maze at some point. Uh, uh, there's actually a, a large hedge maze uh, near uh, near where I live, which uh, I had fun uh, wandering through <laughs> a while back.
0: Oh, maybe you do live near Williamsburg.
1: Um, well, Williamsburg uh, is sort of on the other side of the state for, from where I live. So it's, it's a couple of hours. I was thinking of a different hedge maze uh, at Lou Ray Caverns, just in case any of our listeners uh, are familiar with that.
0: <laughs> uh, from the standpoint of a Californian... Virginia is a small state. I, I guess they can get from one side to the other in a very short period of time. That is certainly true.
1: I guess it's all a matter of perspective. Um, so yeah. So uh, what uh, the uh, the three uh, authors of that one, Bosch, uh, Chartier, and Rowan, were the, the three authors. Uh, and uh, what they're doing there is uh, they're not just they're, they're they're making mazes that uh that that look like historical figures. Like they're, their main uh, they're one of their main uh, creations. And actually, use this as one of the cover images on the book. Is a maze where you know, the the uh, you know the lines and the paths in the maze kind of look like Buddha, and uh, and you know and you know if ever there was a recreational puzzle, uh, this is it. You know how how you know the puzzle being how do you design a maze that looks like an historical figure? Uh, I don't think they were studying that for uh, you know some for its practical significance, but there too the cool thing is that techniques that you can use to do it are inspired by things like the the traveling salesman problem and uh, uh, you know problems with Fourier series and and whatnot. And uh and yeah and it's it's sort of a perfect example of what we're talking about of a uh of how a, just a purely recreational topic just something you're studying just for the fun of it uh just naturally gives rise to really serious techniques uh, in mathematics and uh yes yeah, so that's definitely a fun paper i mean that's a paper uh that's worth reading just for the diagrams alone uh you know the figures are so attractive that uh, it's fun just to flip through
0: you know, here's another classic problem. Graph puzzles have been around since the bridges of Königsberg, but you had some very intriguing ones in which graphs are tied up with probability.
1: Uh yeah, so that's a paper by uh, actually my co-editor uh, Jennifer Beinecke, and and her father Lowell Beinecke. Uh Lowell Beinecke is actually uh, you know quite a famous uh, graph theorist. In fact, he was a, you know, he was a graph theory but uh, excuse me. He was a graph theorist uh before it was cool to be a graph theorist. I mean, he was one of the real uh, pioneers in the subject. And um, and uh, yeah, he's a former editor of the College Mathematics Journal. Yeah. So a, a, as you say, yeah, graph theory was, was largely recreational in and sergeant. In fact, I, I mentioned probability theory at the start of uh, this conversation. Uh, I could easily have mentioned graph theory as another subject where uh, recreational problems inspired uh, the theory. Now, you mentioned the bridges of Konigsberg. Uh, maybe we should mention what that is uh, for, for listeners who aren't familiar. Uh, this was um, uh, a, a problem studied by Euler. Konigsberg was a city in Austria. And it was uh, there were a number of uh, canals and rivers that uh, to, you know partitioned the town uh, into various uh, regions, including an island or two. And there was a sequence of bridges that connected the various regions of the town. And it was a it was sort of a problem that people sometimes wondered about. Uh, was there some way of walking between the various land masses over various bridges? Could you do that in such a way that uh, you used every bridge exactly once and also started you know in the same land mass where you ended? And uh, this was just sort of a little recreational problem. And, um, you know, nowadays, we tend to look at that as a fairly simple problem. Euler, uh, you know, the, the way Euler solved it was one of the first uses of what we now call graph theory. He modeled the land masses uh, as dots, basically, and the bridges as lines joining the dots. And he was able to come up with a condition uh, just from looking at that diagram. He came up with a condition that would guarantee whether or not you had this sort of path uh, you know, that he was interested in. And it was the you know, so, so as I say, nowadays, I mean, this is something we teach students early on. But at the time, that was pioneering stuff. Uh, the idea of. You're modeling the problem in that way. And then in the 1800s, mathematicians like Hamilton uh, were actually marketing puzzles based on graph theoretic problems. Uh, Hamilton marketed a puzzle where the, the goal was to walk around the edges of a dodecahedron and to do that in a way. So now that you hit every vertex, every you know, corner uh, exactly once uh, without using any corner more than once. And again, I mean, he actually sold this people. It was sort of like the Rubik's Cube of the time. Uh, people bought this just because it was fun uh you know to, to, you know it was a fun problem to work on uh, but but you know starting from there starting in the mid-1800s people realized that these kinds of diagrams these dots and lines diagrams that we now call graphs uh they just came up everywhere i mean they were just useful for solving all sorts of problems uh the four color problem which i'm sure you're familiar with uh that's another example uh can you color a map if you picture like the ma- a map of the united states showing all the individual states Uh, or maybe, uh, you know, a map of the counties, uh, you know, in England or something like that. Uh, Can you color the map using only four colors in such a way that neighboring regions uh, do not share the same color? Uh, Well, people realize that's basically a graph theory problem. And, uh, yeah, so anyway, so the paper by uh, Jennifer Beinecke and Lowell Beinecke in the book is basically taking a couple of puzzles uh, that are inspired by graphs in various ways and then, um, you know, showing how, uh, you know, uh, just again, you know, the, the, the same pattern that when you try to solve those puzzles, you're led to some pretty significant results in graph theory. Um, there was one uh, you mentioned to me the other day about, uh, you know, the, uh, you know, the uh, Schroeder-Bernstein theorem, uh, which is a which is a problem about sets. I mean, it's it's, it's a problem about showing a certain one to one correspondences among sets. And uh, and they show how you can actually solve that using graph theory, which was a very creative thing. That was something I had never seen before, frankly, when I read that paper.
0: Yeah, there's a, uh, there's a proof involving, uh, uh, Tarsi's theorem on complete lattices, which makes it a slam dunk, which I always remember because it was so attractive and it sort of falls in line with the one move solution because one move is something that not only applies to puzzles, it applies to chess, it applies to various games like that, and it also applies to, you know, uh, 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 when, Archimedes, uh, when Archimedes realized the one move that would reveal whether or not the, uh, the crown was made of uh, the crown was made of an alloy or pure gold, one move solutions to problems are always appealing.
1: Yeah, they certainly are. And you know, it's funny if, I, if I, uh, I I'm not familiar with that specific proof that that you mentioned, uh, but certainly the Schroeder Bernstein theorem is one that has uh, you know a, a very large number of proofs attached to it. The, 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 the proof you usually see in textbooks of real analysis, that's usually uh, the, the, the venue where, where that theorem comes up. Um. Usually, the the proofs that I, that I've seen presented there are are usually quite complicated. To be honest,
0: yeah, they're tedious. It's sort of like I can remember uh, we're we're diverg- we're diverging a little, but that's perfectly okay. Um, I remember when I was in high school and we proved the binomial theorem by means of induction, and it was really pretty difficult. And then when I took a course in combinatorics, I saw the slam dunk proof of the binomial theorem using combinatorics. It was just great. Yeah, yeah, uh, good. <laughs> <laughs> you know, getting on to more puzzles that appear in your book, I first learned what is now called the Temple of Hanoi problem in Gamow's classic book One, Two, Three Infinity, where it is called the Temple of Benares problem. Computer programming students learn to solve it recursively, but you discuss how to solve it using random moves, which sort of surprised me.
1: Yeah, so I mean, the Towers of Hanoi—that's um, uh, you yeah, know—that's that, an old workhorse <laughs> among recreational mathematics. Uh, the basic puzzle. Uh, yeah, you know, actually, maybe we can probably describe that one. The, the, the basic puzzle is that you have, say, three pegs, uh, and let, let's pick a concrete number. Let's say, uh, five disks. And the disks are stacked in order of a uh, radius. So the one with the largest radius is on the bottom, and then the next smallest is on top, and next smallest and next smallest. So, so you have these, uh, five disks of different sizes, and they're arranged with the smallest one on top and the largest one on the bottom. And then the, 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 the goal uh, of the puzzle is to, uh, move the disks onto one of the other pegs, uh but there's a certain rule you have to follow and the rule is this you can transfer the top disk from one of the pegs onto another one of the pegs but you are never allowed to put a smaller disk uh, excuse me you were never allowed to put a larger disk on top of a smaller disk that's really the only rule um so if you only had two disks this would be an easy problem right you would take uh, the small disk and put it on one of the pegs and then you would put the uh, the larger disk on the on the third peg and then on your next move you could take uh, the smallest disk and put it on top of the larger disk and then you have now moved those two discs from one peg to 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 another peg, uh, but this gets quite difficult uh, if you have I I said five pegs. Uh, you know, suddenly the number of moves you need to do this is quite a bit larger. And if you kick it up uh, to say ten pegs, uh, it's still doable, uh, but uh, but boy does it take a lot of uh, a lot of uh, a lot of moves to do it. And there's an old uh, there's an old legend um, um, uh, surrounding this problem, which is that. Um, uh, you know, some monks in a monastery somewhere have a very large version of this puzzle with uh, like 64 discs or something like that, and uh, they're dutifully transferring the discs. You know, doing the moves you need to do to transfer the discs from one peg to another. And uh, the legend goes that when they finally finish this, uh, the world will come to an end.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's actually described in the Temple of Benares problem in One, Two, Three Infinity. And to make it more attractive, you want to find where the where it is because. The spikes are made of diamonds, and the, uh, the discs are made of gold. Oh. And I'm not sure whether or not you're familiar with this, but there's a wonderful science fiction story called, by Arthur C. Clarke called The Nine Billion Names of God, in which what he does is he does an updated version of this. this when I say updated, I think the story was written in the early 1950s. Yeah. But it's a wonderful story. Yeah,
1: I remember that story, and it's funny. I was actually just thinking of that, <laughs> of that story uh, the <laughs> while we were discussing this. Yeah. Um so yeah so that's another one uh, I you know, I I wouldn't be surprised if that story is actually available online somewhere so something else for our uh, our our listeners uh, to to check out. Yeah now the thing about the towers of hanoi uh is that uh it's it's a classic example of of uh, of, of an inductive process. So the idea is that uh so let, let's go back to the five disk version which i mentioned. Uh if you want to move the five disks uh from say the first peg to the third peg uh you know in broad strokes it's clear what needs to be done. First, you take the first four pegs and you do that like its own puzzle. Like you, you transfer the first four pegs onto, say, the second peg. Or excuse me, the first four discs onto the second peg. Then that liberates the largest disc, and you move that to the third peg. And then you repeat the process once again. You move the four discs uh, on top of uh, you know the third peg on top of the large disc on the third peg. So uh, the idea is that you know once you know how to solve the four disc puzzle, you automatically know how to solve the five disc puzzle. And you can kind of see that the number of moves would roughly double. Uh, you know, each time you do this, you basically have to do the, the four, uh, you know, solving the five disc puzzle is effectively solving the four disc puzzle twice. And then once you can do the five disc puzzle, uh, then you can transfer that into the six disc, uh, uh, puzzle. Uh, yeah. So anyway, what the, uh, okay. So that's, that's the Towers of Annoying. There's, there's a rich literature, uh, you know, on, on, that problem and on variations on the problem. Uh, the authors of that paper, that was uh Max Alexeyev and uh, Toby Berger were the authors on that paper. Uh, yeah, they study uh, a number of variations on that puzzle. And, um, one of the cool things that they do there is that they show that, uh, certain techniques from, from physics, actually, uh, from the physics of electric circuits, uh, are actually useful in, uh, in, in, understanding, uh, you know, the solutions to that puzzle. And that was kind of one of the main points of, of, of their paper. And, uh, you know, that was another one that was a new one to me. You know, it's, it's a very interesting experience and maybe this is a digression too, but it's a very interesting experience editing a book like this, uh, because, uh, you know, we were, we received a big pile of, of submissions, uh, you know, for the book and, uh, you know, I, I was, you know, I was reading them as an editor, but I was also just reading them as a fan because um, they had all sorts of games and puzzles and techniques that I had never seen before. Uh, so, uh, you know, I learned a lot uh, just from editing the papers from the book. And uh, this one was a new one on me that, that the physics of electric circuits uh, is actually relevant to the towers of Hanoi, you know, this old workhorse in uh, recreational mathematics.
0: Well, one of the things that has always, always enchanted me about mathematics is how it just seems to crop up practically everywhere. And one of the things that I think that your book is useful for, even though it's pitched at a higher level, is that we have a, we have a problem intriguing students nowadays with mathematics because there's so much in the way of entertainment going on. And I think what you have to do is I think you have to insert intriguing mathematics earlier into the curriculum so that students really start to enjoy it the way that we enjoy it. And a great way to do this is puzzles because the human mind seems to be wired in such a way that puzzles appeal to us.
1: Yeah, I think that's true. Um, so, uh, so first of all, just about the, 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 the book itself, the, the, the point you raise actually is worth emphasizing. We, 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 we should be clear that this is not a, a, a popular level book. I mean, this, this is not a, you know, You know, I, I think, uh, you, know, uh, you know, a lay person might find uh, some of the papers, you know, pretty tough going. We certainly did not shy away from including, uh, you know, the equations and, and some of the technical details. Um, but we did make a real effort that uh, the paper to be generally readable. Uh, and uh, so that, uh, you know, even if all the math, you know, even if you don't want to uh, parse all of the equations and chase through every little piece of notation, you can still follow the flow uh, a what the people are talking about. So it's sort of, uh, so it's not a popular level book, uh, but uh, we did, endeav- you know, you know compare to other high-level math books, we did endeavor to be very readable. And in fact, uh, I would mention specifically the uh, the, the the first uh, four papers in the book, uh, we put that in a section called Vignettes, uh, by which we meant uh, papers that are mathematically lighter uh, than the others. That maze paper we were discussing was in that uh, category. The, the one-move puzzles was in that category. Yeah, so I, I wouldn't say the book is light reading, But on the other hand, if you're the kind of person who thinks uh, a book called "The Mathematics of Various Entertaining Subjects" might be interesting, I think you'll be able to get something out of it. Okay, so that was the idea there. Now, uh, yeah, now what you say about puzzles is um, I I think exactly right. You know, people will always say, "Oh, I hate math. I hate math." Uh, But but they like solving puzzles. I mentioned Sudoku puzzles, uh, you know, earlier. And uh, if you buy pretty much any book on Sudoku puzzles, uh, if you read, you know, if you read the introduction to the book, they usually have a warning. Uh, where they say, oh, you know, even though we're using numbers, you know, even though it's numbers, you're writing down the puzzle. This is not a math puzzle. Okay. You're not doing math. Okay. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I- yeah. And, you know, and I think mathematicians reading things like that get a little frustrated because I mean, Sudoku, that those are logic puzzles that you're doing. Those are just straight up logic puzzles. And as far as we're concerned, that is a math problem. <laughs> um, so like you say is exactly right. People tend to like games and puzzles. Even people who, who, who think they hate math will get intrigued. Uh, if you give them a clever brain teaser, if you give them, say, the Monty Hall problem, or or, or something like that, you know, suddenly they'll get intrigued by it. Uh, but oh, yeah, people, But yeah, you know, but people but,
0: absolutely love that.
1: I'm sorry, people absolutely love. Oh that. yeah, and, and and what you say is right. It's that yeah. What what, what people don't like is arithmetic. Uh yeah you know, you know, you know, you know, all true, yeah, what people don't like is computation, and what people don't like frankly, is feeling confused, right I mean it's, it, it, it's not math specifically it's feeling confused, and it's just those, those two I think often go together. It can sometimes seem like a foreign language class so um uh so yeah, so i i i I think that's a real issue. um I think one of the reasons people come out hating math is that in elementary and middle school, uh we spend so much time uh just hammering arithmetic and hammering just wrote algorithms, you know, for, for solving problems without, you know, and, and even there, you know, you, you know, you're taught these algorithms and you memorize them, but even there, you know, you, you never learn about the reasons the algorithms work. I mean, it's, it's something that's just handed down and you're supposed to memorize them. And, uh, and yeah, so this is a real issue uh, because, you know, it, you know it, it, it's very hard to strike the right balance. I mean, obviously we want kids to be able to do basic arithmetic. I mean, that is an important skill, uh, but when that's all they see, uh, they really come by, by the time I get them in college, uh, they just have completely the wrong idea of what mathematics is. And this is something I struggle with uh, Trying to when I try to educate college students. In fact, I have a joke that I like to make that uh, I think you know a lot of my college students uh, have this idea that in a math class, there is a tacit contract between the students and the professor. And the contract says this, it says they, as the student, uh, will learn whatever techniques I give them. OK, they'll memorize my formulas. OK, they'll memorize the theorems. And then when test time comes around, they will repeat those formulas with machine-like precision. But if I ever ask them to, say, prove something or explain why something is true or, or reason their way to something, they get viscerally upset. Like, that's a, that's a major breach of etiquette that I would ask them to do that. Uh, like, I'm not holding up my end of the bargain. <laughs> so, yeah, so that's another goal of a book like this. It's that uh, to, to mathematicians, mathematics is not about reaching for the nearest formula and just applying it mindlessly. For mathematicians, the interesting part is discovering what the formula is in the first place. (laughs) You know, that's the really interesting part. And I think, yeah, math, you know, giving people games and puzzles and brain teasers and then showing them, hey, you know, this little brain teaser just leads you very naturally into these very abstract uh, constructions in mathematics. uh, I think that can do a lot of good. Uh, Yeah.
0: You know, one of the things that you might consider doing, because you've written certain books before, is you might consider... Looking at what is accessible for say middle school students um starting from the approach of introducing it via puzzles, people do this sporadically, but they don't do it as uh uh you know they they'll they'll write an article on it or they'll uh you know or they'll mention it in a class sometime, but you could probably develop a reasonable amount of mathematics this way, but I'd like to get back to the book for a second because actually. Um, we could talk about education, and the students in Virginia are obviously not much different from those in California. But because it's your book that we're talking sure, about, sure. Well, um, we'll, 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 let's go back to we'll, it.
1: We'll, we'll do a separate conversation. To uh, solve okay. the problem
0: <laughs> we'll do that when you when you when you get your next uh, when you get your next book written and send me a copy. <laughs> Okay. Anyway, coin weighing problems, which we discussed before, seem to have been around forever. I've always wondered if there was a different methodology depending upon whether the counterfeit coin is known to be of lower weight compared to the real coins, or whether it is merely known to have a different weight. I don't know if I've uh, phrased this, uh, uh, phrased this clearly.
1: Well, that, 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 that's actually roughly the subject of, a, of the paper you have in mind, which was written by Tanya Kovanova, uh, who's another one who's actually kind of a big name for these kinds of problems, uh, you know, recreational problems. Uh, she actually runs a, a math blog, um, which I'm sure you can find with Google, uh, where she often discusses problems of this sort. Uh, yeah, so I mean, coin weighing problems—you you, you could very easily write a book uh, just on coin weighing problems. There are so many variations on the basic theme. Uh, we were discussing one earlier about, uh, you know, the, the one I mentioned where you have the, you know, several bags of coins and one of them has fake coins, and in that one, uh, the kind of what one, one made it such an interesting problem is that you only had one weighing. Uh, the kinds of problems that Kovanova is discussing in that paper. Uh, are 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 a bit more complicated. So there you have uh, you know some number of coins, and you have what's called a balance scale. Okay, so you don't get a you don't get an absolute uh, number for the weight, uh, but you can see if different piles of coins balance. And she's discussing very uh, very uh, general sorts of weighing problems where you have some number of coins. Let like, let maybe you have say like nine coins, uh, and you're trying to find one counterfeit coin. Um, and I think as you say, I think in the traditional version of the problem, you usually assume uh that the coin is heavier you know, than the others and that that's actually relevant in the problems that Kovanova is discussing uh all we know is that the fake coin has a different weight uh from the real coins we don't know whether it's heavier or lighter and that actually significantly complicates things uh and what she's asking is are are very general problems if you have uh a certain you know any you know she she you know, rather than doing problems like you have 9 coins one of them is heavier how many weighings do you need that's that's a very concrete sort of problem. Uh, but, but for a mathematician, it's very natural to want to generalize things. So a mathematician would say, well, why should I study that specific problem? Why don't I say you have N coins uh, and uh, and K of them are fake? And I have uh, you know, a scale with, uh, you know, with L many pans and, uh, you know, how many, uh, you know, how, you know, how many weighings do I need to distinguish the fake coin, given all these very abstract uh, conditions? So, so that, that, that's what Kovanova is doing in that paper. Uh, to be honest, uh, I've not read that paper so long ago, I don't remember the specific technique she used to do that. Uh, but that was uh, kind of the, uh, uh, that, that was the theme that she was doing. And it's a really nice example of uh, of, of how mathematicians think, uh, in that, uh, you know, you don't like to just solve the puzzle that's in front of you. Uh, you like to try to generalize things, and you like to try to come up with methods that are applicable to the largest number of puzzles you you know, you, you can get away with. Uh, so, yeah, that's a really nice puzzle. And that's another one where the mathematics isn't really too dense. Um, I think, uh, You know, uh, know, most readers would be able to follow that one to the end.
0: Um, You know, there was an absolutely fascinating section on crossword puzzles. I've always been a devotee of crossword puzzles because my mother was fascinated by both crossword puzzles and double cross sticks and reserved an hour of the day for doing them. Most of us think of these as testing our facility with both the language and how well we are informed, but there was a lot of mathematics connected with both the design and solution of crossword puzzles.
1: Yeah, and that paper actually, uh, that, that's one I found especially interesting, actually for exactly the same reason you say. I, I, I happen to really love crossword puzzles, uh, but I had never really uh, you know, thought much about the mathematics underlying them. Now, the, the fellow who wrote that paper, that was uh, John McSweeney, uh, who as I recall is at the rose Holman uh, Institute of Technology. Uh, he did something really interesting in that paper, something I thought was very clever, uh, what he's actually doing isn't so much constructing crossword puzzles, but he's talking about how do you measure the difficulty uh, of a crossword puzzle? Uh, you know, that's kind of a tricky question. Is, is is there some objective mathematical way of measuring how difficult a crossword puzzle is? And what he did in that paper that I thought was really clever uh, was that he realized that you can model this problem uh, using techniques from epidemiology, of all things, uh, that uh, when you're, uh, you know, one thing epidemiologists uh, study is how do uh, diseases spread through a population? So initially you have, you know, one or maybe a small number of people who are infected and then they infect others and they infect others. And then you get this sort of cascading effect where, you know, for a while it's only a very small number of people who have the illness. Uh, but then uh, at some point you reach critical mass and suddenly it just cascades. And what McSweeney realized was that solving a crossword puzzle is the same kind of thing. Uh, you know, you start with an empty grid. Uh, and it, at first, it's it, you know, it's always, you know, it, it, you know well, if it's a difficult puzzle. It's always very difficult to get started. How do you get those first words um, and, uh, you know, you always look for those gimme clues, you know, the ones that you can be absolutely sure you're correct on. And then, yeah, so for a while, you know, it, it's very difficult. You fill in one word and it's going very slowly. But at some point you have enough words filled in so that you get enough cross letters, uh, you know, on the various other words. And then suddenly the solving goes a little faster and a little faster. And then at some point you have so much of the puzzle solved uh, that, uh, that 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 the whole thing just sort of collapses and yeah, you're able to fill in the whole puzzle. And uh, he said that's the you know, math- mathematicians would call that a cascading process like that. You know, the sort of process that starts off slow and then gets faster and faster. That's a cascading process. And there are various mathematical models for understanding those kinds of processes. And McSweeney, what McSweeney McSweeney did that was so clever uh, was to realize that you can use those models uh, for analyzing something like crossword puzzle difficulty. So, uh, yeah, I had a good time. Uh, The mathematics, there's a lot of uh, statistical analysis in that paper, too. That's actually a perfect example of a paper where, as it goes along, it actually does get fairly dense. I mean, I think uh, if you really try to follow every equation, that might be a difficult paper to uh, to, uh, to to read for for a lot of people, and yet uh, most of the paper will be very follow. You you cannot you can follow what he is doing, even if you don't understand every symbol and every equation.
0: You know, you were discussing Sudoku puzzles earlier, and Sudoku puzzles don't quite cascade in the same fashion with most Sudoku puzzles. And you're an expert, but I just I like doing them. Um, most Sudoku puzzles, what you can do is you can fill in things early relatively easily using a few basic stratagems. Then towards the middle of the puzzle, it becomes very difficult and at the end it all collapses.
1: Yeah, yeah, so that's funny. Now, uh, so if I may mention, I'm the co-author of a book about the mathematics of Sudoku, uh, my co-author being Laura Talman. So, uh, yeah, so that's why I keep mentioning, uh, you know, Sudoku puzzles. Um, but, yeah, like you say, it's correct there. Now, it, it's interesting because there's actually a rich literature on how to measure the difficulty of Sudoku puzzles, too. Um, and, like, you know, how do you measure? You know, you, like in newspapers, you'll often see, oh, this is a one star puzzle or a three star puzzle. And, uh, and, and you might wonder, well, how, you know, how do they measure the difficulty? And uh, as you say, it's not really a cascading process in the same way that the crossword puzzles are. Uh, and yet there is some very rich mathematics uh, you know, surrounding that and basically what it comes down to is that the difficulty of the puzzle is measured relative to the complexity of the techniques that are needed. So you mentioned, like, usually right at the start, you can fill in a few freebies. Like, there, there are a few where uh, uh, it's, it's, it's just obvious for various reasons what to fill in the cell. But then there are much more difficult techniques, techniques that require really elaborate chains of logic, right? And if you need those techniques, uh, then you get a much harder puzzle. So, so you're absolutely right. You know, so, you know, Sudoku puzzles have, to a certain extent, replaced crossword puzzles. Uh, maybe I shouldn't say replace, but... Uh, Uh, You know, uh, uh, you know, know, Sudoku puzzle books tend to sell better than crossword puzzle books these days, Um, and uh, they have a lot of similarities and a lot of differences. So it's uh, it's an interesting comparison there.
0: I'm a big devotee of card tricks because I spent a lot of my youth as a card player, and I've never heard of the ice cream trick. Perhaps you could explain how it is performed to our audience, and we'll let your book explain the rationale behind it.
1: Yeah, so that's a really fun paper. I mean, mathematical card tricks, uh, that's another one, where there's uh, there's just a vast literature of mathematical card tricks. In fact, uh, I have one I like to do on the first day of class as an icebreaker with my students. I have a very famous mathematical card trick uh that, that I like to do, and I always tell them on the first day of class, I say... Uh, now, uh, sometime during the semester, I'll tell you how I did that trick, but I won't tell you ahead of time what, you know, what day that will be. So you have to come to class every single day, because that might be the day when I'll show you how I did that card trick. Yeah. <laughs> yeah now the, co- now, now the paper you're talking about, that was, uh, authored um, by, uh, Colin Mulcahy, uh, with another fellow named Neil Calkin. but Colin Mulcahy is actually a big name in this area. Uh, he, he just recently published a book of mathematical card tricks, uh, and, um, uh, uh, he, he's known. He, he's been writing a column for uh, the, the Mathematical Association of America, the MAA. Uh, their website. Uh, he's been writing a column. It's called uh, Card Column. Right. His name is Column C O L M. So it's Card Column. And uh, and so he's a he's a very famous guy in this area of mathematical card tricks. Uh, now, what the ice cream trick actually is, and, and 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 that's what the paper discusses. He has this this trick called the ice cream trick, and then he discusses the mathematical principles underlying it. But what the trick actually is is you take a, a, a relatively small pile of cards, maybe fifteen to twenty cards. And, uh, and you ask uh, the spectator, uh, you know, what's, your favorite flavor, uh, what's your favorite flavor of ice cream? And they'll say something like chocolate, let's say. Then you spell out chocolate, C-H-O-C, you know, dealing out one card each time. And, uh, and you do this process. You count you out one card, and then you put the remaining cards on top. And then you ask another spectator, hey, what's your favorite flavor of ice cream? And they'll say, I don't know, vanilla. And you spell out vanilla, and someone else might say strawberry. So you spell out strawberry. And you do this, and, it, and you know, what it looks like you're doing is that it looks like you're basically just shuffling the cards based on the completely random suggestions uh, of these audience members who, who are in fact not in on the trick, right? I mean, this is not something you prepare ahead of time. And uh, and yet at the end of all this, you say, uh, uh, you know, the magician is now able to tell you exactly what the top card is. He'll say something like, okay, you know, uh, turn over the top card. It's the four of diamonds. And he'll turn it over. And sure enough, if you did the trick properly, <laughs> it really will be the four of diamonds. And, you know, and it, it, it's a really good card trick because it just seems impossible. I mean, it really seems like uh, you really are just shuffling the cards in this totally random arbitrary way and that there and that so much is just out of your control uh, as the magician that there's just no way you could possibly know what the top card will be. And yet, because of certain mathematical principles underlying the exact manner in which you're shuffling the cards, uh, you, a, you actually can control uh, which card is going to end up on top. And, uh, and, uh, and that's the idea. Uh, and that's the idea of the trick. And that's what the rest of the paper is discussing is uh, the mathematical principles that make this work. Uh, but it's a very cool trick, because once you understand a little bit of the mathematics, you can actually go and perform this uh, for friends. I mean, it's not one where you need, uh, you know, years of training and sleight of hand to do it. Uh, you just learn a few basic things and the trick takes care of itself, uh, and that's what's, uh, that's what's so much fun about it.
0: Well, you know, one of the things that I used to do uh, when I was teaching is we would have a day at school in which we'd open the school up to the elementary school classes, and what I would do is I would do mathematical card tricks coupled with a very, very small amount of sleight of hand that um you need to distract people for, but I always had somebody to help me do that. And um, I had one teacher come back and uh see my uh see my performance several straight years and then once afterwards he came up to me and he said you know, our students voted, and you were the second most popular demonstration in school, following only the boa constrictor in the biology department. Wow! Yeah. <laughs> and I said, "That's high praise indeed." Yeah, <laughs> it's pretty hard to see with a boa constrictor. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not up to eating a live mouse. Uh-huh. <laughs> but yes, it just goes to show that these things are so appealing at such a young age. We just got to take more advantage of doing yeah. it. Yeah, I'll, I'll, although anyway. I'll,
1: I'll, I'll, I'll bet the mouse probably preferred your talk, though.
0: <laughs> anyway, getting back to your book, um, one of the things that, as I said, I had a, I had a, a long involvement when I was young with uh, with card playing, card games, and so uh, when I read a certain chapter, I asked, "What exactly is heartless poker, and how do the probabilities and the associated hand rankings?" Differ from those in regular poker, which is undoubtedly familiar to most of our audience.
1: Right. Yeah. The Heartless Poker paper. I mean, I, I think that paper certainly wins the title, or uh, wins the wins the award for a best title of uh, any paper. Because uh, when you, if you're, you know, if you're mathematically inclined and you see a paper called Heartless Poker, uh, I think I think you want to at least read the introduction of the paper. Uh, that was uh, Dominic Landfear, and actually, Laura Tallman was the, the co-author of that. I mentioned her a moment ago as my co-author on, on on that book of Sudoku puzzles. Um, yeah. So what they're studying there uh is this idea that in poker uh you know just just traditional uh, five card draw poker so not 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 really texas holdem uh which i think is what uh, poker means to people these days uh but just traditional five card draw poker um there's always this challenge in, in in ranking the hands right the idea is that um you know a really strong hand uh is one that's less likely to come up so so four of a kind uh is certainly a much stronger hand than a three of a kind because it's much harder to get four of a kind and then a straight flush is even better than four of a kind because it's even harder to get a straight flush than it is to get four of a kind. Okay, now anyone who has first learned poker has encountered this difficulty that you have these three hands, the straight, the flush, and the full house. And it's always, uh, I think for beginning poker players, it's always a little hard to remember which one's the which one's the strongest hand and which one's the weakest hand. And it turns out that the straight is the weakest. In traditional poker, uh, the straight is the weakest. Uh, it's, in other words, it's easier to get a straight than it is to get a flush, and it's easier to get a flush than it is to get a full house. Okay, now if you think about it, uh, what if you used a non-standard deck of cards, right? A, a standard deck has four suits and it has 13 cards in each suit. Okay. Well, just imagine that you only had three suits, right? Instead of all four suits, maybe you got rid of the hearts so that you're playing heartless poker. Get it, right? So uh, you only have the other three suits. Well, if you think about it now, it's going to be much easier to get a flush than it would have been before. With only three suits, it's much easier to get five cards of the same suit. So if you start playing games like that, you know, if you start playing poker with a non-standard deck like that, maybe suddenly the flush is the weakest hand, and then the, maybe the straight is in the middle, and the full house is the strongest. So you can play games with this. You can have, say, what if you have fewer suits or more suits? Or what if you have, you know, more or less than 13 cards in each suit? Uh, let's say, like, if you only had, uh, say, 10 cards in each suit, it might be easier to get a straight. So that's the idea of that paper. When they talk about heartless poker they're talking specifically what if you play poker with a standard deck except that you leave out the hearts and then they go on to study other uh you know exotic decks uh in fact you can actually buy i I mean this is something you know that's actually marketed it's called the fat pack uh you know of cards it's basically uh i think it's basically two standard decks except the idea is that you have eight suits so you have clubs hearts spades diamonds uh and then you have other uh you know suits they made up like you know hatchets and pitchforks and you know, things like that <laughs> and, uh, yeah and, and basically that's what they're doing in that paper now once again this paper is just a classic example of what gets people interested in recreational mathematics because the basic problem here you could explain to anyone uh you know, I, you know i mean you don't need a degree in mathematics to understand what it would mean uh to, to play poker with a non-standard deck and you can see in general terms why you know in the example i mentioned for you know for example uh that if you if you leave out the hearts it might be easier to get a flush than it would be before so they started started studying this, and, and 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 again, they tried to generalize it as much as possible. You know, suppose you have n suits with k cards in each suit, and uh, and what they discovered very interestingly was that uh, determining uh, which, you know, determining the correct ordering of the hands ultimately comes down to a problem in Diophantine analysis. Now, this is actually uh, uh, that that's a branch of number theory. Uh, <laughs> Diophantine equations uh, refers to uh, you know uh, you know. Uh, certain polynomial equations where you're trying to find integer solutions, but suffice it to say, it's a, it's a big deal in number theory. So suddenly, uh, uh, just by studying these different decks of cards and just saying, hey, what what do we need to do to solve this problem? Uh, they were led to you know really fundamental topics uh, in number theory. Uh, and actually, I should mention they had that kind of interesting conclusion. What they point out is that by jiggering with the number of suits and the number of uh, uh, cards per suit, you can get any any ordering you want. You can get uh, you can make full house the weakest hand uh, by by picking the right deck. Where you can make the flush the strongest hand by picking the right deck. Uh, so yeah, so it's another classic example of the kind of papers uh, you know that that we feature here. I mean, what could be more recreational than uh, you know you know playing poker with non-standard decks, <laughs> right? <laughs> and then pretty soon you're doing modern number theory.
0: Well, actually your uh, uh, non-standard decks in poker actually go back uh, some distance because one of the first variations of poker, and I learned this because I played poker half a century ago or started. Uh-huh. Um uh, that, uh, the variation was deuces wild in which, uh, all the deuces can be any card you want. And with, uh, even though that's a very, very small change, it makes the deuces any card you want in any particular hand. It changes the ranking order of the hands. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and probably most old time poker players who were raised, uh, in an era before Texas Hold'em became the dominant form of familiar with that. Um, anyway, uh, we've got time for a couple of more topics from the book. Right. So what is an affine plane and how does it differ from a Euclidean plane? And how does tic-tac-toe differ on the two planes?
1: Right. Okay, yeah. So that's paper. Um, uh, I'm actually blanking on the authors at the moment, but I have the book right in front of me. So that was uh, <laughs> uh, that was, that was uh, Maureen Carroll and uh, Stephen Doherty uh, wrote that one. Yeah. So, of course, everyone's familiar with uh, traditional tic-tac-toe. Uh, where you just play it on a, you know, on a, on a little three by three grid. Uh, very roughly, uh, uh it, it might be a little tricky to give, uh, you know, a, you know, a precise uh, technical definition of an affine plane, but very roughly, uh, it's like a regular plane where you have a wraparound, uh, aspect to it. Uh, so that three in a row, uh, or maybe four in a row or five in a row, depending on how big the plane is that you're playing on, you have a certain wraparound. So it's like the, uh, you know, your, uh, your, your, your three X's can go up one diagonal and then come back, uh, you know, through the bottom. Uh, so you have this sort of wraparound, uh, effect. Uh, if you you know maybe some of our uh, listeners are old enough to remember the old video game uh, Asteroids, uh, where the asteroid would disappear, say on the right hand of the screen, and then suddenly reappear.
0: And then come on the other, yeah,
1: yeah that's, I'm the, old yeah, that's the kind of thing we're talking about. <laughs> so basically, uh, tic-tac-toe becomes a lot more interesting when you when you play it on an affine plane. Um, you know, I mean, I, I I think everyone knows that when you you know just traditional three by three tic-tac-toe uh, very quickly ends in a tie. Uh, but if you imagine playing on a, on a much larger uh, surface than on surface with a surface with much more interesting uh, topological properties, uh, then uh, you got a very rich uh, mathematical theory. And, and, and that's basically what uh, Carol and Doherty are doing in that paper, uh, is analyzing what if you play games like Tic-Tac-Toe but on these more fancy, on these fancier uh, you know, surfaces. Uh, it actually reminded me, I, I, I like to play chess. Uh, I'm, I'm an avid chess player. And uh, one time uh, I, um, a fellow showed me some computer software for playing chess on a Taurus. You know, so, so, yeah, so instead of playing it on a rectangle, which is hard enough, we're playing on a square, I should say, uh, which is hard enough. Uh, now, you know, uh, you know, the bishop moves off the left hand side of the board and immediately appears on the right hand side of the board. <laughs> so suddenly, uh, you know, you're in you're in more danger than you realize uh, that that's that very roughly is the gist of that paper. Uh, and you get, you know, suddenly tic-tac-toe, which is a very boring uh, game in its traditional form, suddenly becomes uh, a lot of fun to play, frankly, uh, and also a lot of fun to study mathematically.
0: Well, you know, some things are easier on a torus than a plane, because I think it would... Uh, uh, we mentioned earlier the four-color problem. I think that it was known that uh, a map on a torus needs seven colors to color it, and I think that was known considerably before the four-color pro- four problem was solved. Oh, that's so? Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, I, uh, you, this is one of the random, you know, odd facts that I remember from a career in mathematics. Jason, it's been a fascinating uh hour talking with you, well, 50 minutes or so. And there are still topics in the book that we have not plumbed, but I feel that readers and the listeners would really, you know, especially those with some degree of mathematical uh, uh, familiarity beyond just ordinary high school mathematics would absolutely love this book. And I think that our listeners might like to First of all, if they want to get in touch with you, how can they do
1: that? Uh, okay, well, I'm, I'm actually pretty easy to find online. If you just type my name into Google, uh, my, my personal webpage is probably the first or second thing that comes up. Um, uh, I'll, I'll leave an email address. Uh, you, can, you can reach me at, uh, I'm a professor at James Madison University. and You can reach me at um, uh, rosenhjd, rosenhjd, at jmu.edu. Uh, but frankly, if you just uh, search for uh, the James Madison University Department of Mathematics, uh, you'll very quickly uh, be led to my contact information. And, uh, yeah, I really enjoyed this conversation as well. And thank you very much uh, for having me. Uh, and as you mentioned, uh, you know, there are quite a few other papers in the book that we didn't get around to. Uh, and, uh, I, I, I should mention, actually, I, I did mention it briefly uh, early on, but I'll mention it now. Uh, you know, Jennifer Beinecke, my co-editor and I, uh, are, are currently putting together the second volume in the series, uh, based on, uh, uh, based on, uh, you know, the second moves conference that took place last August and we're having a lot of fun with that. Uh, and, uh, that should be available next year. And we're really excited about it. We have papers by uh, Eric Demaine, uh, who's a very famous uh, mathematician at MIT, and uh, we have another paper by Peter Winkler, and uh, and Richard Guy has a paper in the book. And we're we're really excited about it. And uh, so uh, so if you hey you like this book, uh, volume two will be available uh, soon enough. <laughs> and
0: you know I want to talk to you about it,
1: uh, and I'll be ha- happy to do so.
0: Delighted, and also you've told me something about what is usually my concluding question. What's next on your uh, on your list of things to tackle?
1: Well, well, uh, so so I'll mention two projects. Uh, you know, so uh, obviously that one is the the one I'm working on now, and uh, separately from that, I'm working on uh, actually my own book uh, that, I, uh, that you know, where I'll be the author, not the uh, editor. Uh, a book actually about uh, the history of logic puzzles and uh, talking and and actually exploring exactly this theme, showing how uh, many. You know, modern ideas and logic. I mean, logic is this big professional area. Mathematicians study logic and uh, philosophers study it, computer scientists study it. And yet a, a lot of what uh, is now modern, you know, major ideas in logic uh, can either be illustrated by or arises from, uh, you know, uh, you know, puzzles and logic. I mean, you look at Lewis Carroll, for example. Uh, Alice in Wonderland, Through the Looking Glass. Those are, you know, there are all sorts of logical themes in those books. So, uh, that's a book that I'm working on. It'll be a little while yet before that book is available. Uh, but that's my
0: own. Jason, book. sign me up for that one too. Okay, great. I'll uh, to- <laughs> you. Okay. It's been a pleasure, Jason. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you very much.